Let me begin by calling attention to Maddie Ellis's departure tomorrow. So I know we prayed for Maddie last Sunday. She's a member of our church, and she's leaving tomorrow. For those who don't know, she's leaving tomorrow for Romania, and then, Lord willing, Lord willing, from there into Ukraine to help with um, Christians and churches who are ministering to refugees in their area. Uh, just want to bring that to your attention because we prayed over Maddie last Sunday, um, and I want us to be mindful to keep praying. Brothers and sisters, keep praying for our sister. Um, if you don't have her contact information, grab it from her before you leave today. Uh, give her a hug. Maybe you've never met her before. Just go up to her after the service and give her a big, long, awkward hug and let her know that you're praying for her, that, that you're with her. We're so proud of you, sister. We love you. You're going out from us. We're sending you. We're with you. And the spirit of the living God is with you. And we're here for you. If you need anything, please let us know. And by the way, will you send me the link that I can send into the church so that if we want to give you money, we can do that. So will you send that to me? Okay, because there'll be financial needs as well. So I want to make sure to get that in front of our people. Proud of you, sister. We're thankful for you. If there are two things you must know about the God of the Bible... It's that he is both just and merciful. It's that he's both just and merciful. He's righteous and good. He's holy and kind. As we just sang in holy, 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 he's merciful and mighty. We start to see this even in the first few chapters of the Bible we're continuing on in our study of the book of Genesis. We're coming finally to the end of Genesis 3. This will be the 20th sermon in Genesis 1 through 3. And I promise you we will pick up the pace from here on out, averaging about a chapter a week for the next year until we end our study of Genesis. But in Genesis 3, we've learned that God is just, that God upholds his word. He gave Adam and Eve the warning. He said clearly, In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Then they ate from the tree, and he doesn't just let it go. He doesn't act like nothing happened. He doesn't just sweep their rebellion under a rug and continue interacting with them in an unhindered kind of way. He calls them to account because he is just. But as we've seen, even in his justice, he's merciful and unexpectedly so here in Genesis 3. This is the part of the story that's so striking and surprising to me. God, after they've sinned, God gently approaches Adam and Eve with questions, seeking to draw them out of their hiding, inviting them and giving them an opportunity to confess their sins and repent of their sins, rather than coming to them with thunderbolts and and driving them out with threats and condemnation, he approaches them with mercy to draw them out. The God of the Bible is both just and merciful. The God of the Bible does not let sin go, and the God of the Bible loves to give mercy to sinners. This is who God is, this is who he's always been, and this is who he'll always be. So as we come to the end of Genesis 3, we're going to see these two aspects of God's character on display yet again. In Genesis 3, 20 through 24, that's our text for this morning, Genesis 3, 20 through 24, we'll see Adam's response to God's merciful prom promise. Then we'll see two further examples of God's justice and mercy woven together as God continues to respond to Adam and Eve's sin. We're going to see more justice, we're going to see more mercy woven together as God interacts with these two rebels that he made. So Genesis 3, 20-24, here's how we can outline our text. If you're taking notes, here are three points. Number one, we're going to see Adam's response. Adam's response in verse 20. Number two, we'll see God's provision in verse 21. God's provision in verse 21. And then thirdly, God's protection 
God's protection in verses 22 through 24. So again, Adam's response, God's provision, and then God's protection. Justice and mercy for sinners. Number one, Adam's response. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You're like, John, what do you talk? What, what do you mean Adam's response? What, what does this have to do with Adam's response? Well, what's just happened is in verses 14 through 19, God has given these oracles of judgment, first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. And right after these oracles of judgment, this first verse, verse 20, is about Adam naming his wife, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. What is this about? This seems rather out of place. What's going on here? Well, let's, let's look and see. Because of sin, we've already seen back in verse 16 that because of sin, the woman w- will have pain in childbearing, justice. But in spite of the pain, the woman will indeed have children, mercy. There will be pain, but there also be, will be children. In spite of the penalty of death, there will be life, generations of life, the mother of all living, it says there in verse 20. Notice in verse 22 that the narrator says that Adam names her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Why does he say she was the mother and not will be the mother? Does she have kids yet? No. But the narrator, Moses, as he's recounting this, says she was the mother. Why is this past tense instead of future tense? Well, because he wants to emphasize that Adam was absolutely certain of this fact that Adam firmly believed that Eve would indeed have children. That though death was coming, life was also on its way. Adam believes that this is as good as done before it's done. So he goes ahead and names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. What do we call this kind of thing, by the way? What do we call this when, when someone believes that God will do what he says he will do before he does it? Faith, faith, faith that God will do what he says he will do before he does it. Faith. Adam naming his wife Eve may be the first profession of faith in the fallen world. In fact, probably is. Adam responds to the word of God with faith. Even though they're threatened by death, verse 19 says... You're going to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So they're threatened by death. But Adam doesn't believe that he and Eve will be the first and then the last humans on earth. After a death sentence, Adam names his wife life. Eve literally sounds like the Hebrew for life or life giver or living. This means that he heard the promise of chapter 3, verse 15 with faith. Remember chapter 3, verse 15? God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam heard that and he believed God. He believed that there would be offspring, that there would be children despite their pain, despite their rebellion. He accepted God's word in faith. The only proper response to the word of God is faith. Some of you may be hearing the word of God this morning and you've heard these types of things your whole life, but you've never embraced them. Faith is not an intellectual sense like, yeah, okay, whatever, I believe that. Faith is an embracing of something such that you will give your life to it and for it. And it starts to redefine literally who you are. Have you embraced Christ and the word of God and the gospel in that kind of way is the question. Not have you mentally assented to some propositions. Faith is the only proper way to respond to the word of God. The word of God requires faith because we don't see these things. It would be wonderful if we could see the Lord Jesus right now as we're singing in worship. Oftentimes I'm just trying to envision Christ on his throne and what it looks like, what it will look like one day just to embrace the living Christ. Do you guys do that? I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to see the Lord Jesus? I can't wait for that. I can't wait to see his face. 
can't wait to see his face. In the meantime, we walk by faith, not by sight. We put hope in things we don't yet see. We believe that God is true and not a liar, that he will send his Christ back to save his people and judge the world. And so we wait patiently and we wait with faith. We wait expectantly, hoping, embracing this Christ with our lives. We do crazy things like go to the Ukraine because we believe that Christ is real and that the gospel is true and that everybody needs to hear it. We believe there's real suffering in the world and that people need help and they need help in Jesus' name. They don't just need humanitarian help. They need help in Jesus' name. So we give our lives for this because we believe it. Adam responds to the word of God with faith, so he names his wife Eve before they even have children. Now this naming of Eve quickly is also an example of him, a yet further example of him exercising humble headship. Remember, he's already named her back in 2.23. In 2.23, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he's named her before the fall. Now he names her again after the fall, simply alerting us to the fact that God had put him in a position of headship or authority over, over her, not, not as a dictator, but as a humble leader of his wife. Before the fall, he names her woman. He's acknowledging that he's her source of life and her companion. He's East, the Hebrew word East. She's Isa, literally her word. Her name comes out of him as she came out of him. But then after the fall, he names her Eve. Eve. Acknowledging that he's indebted to her for life's future. That all of the future generations of mankind are, are indebted to her for a future. Her first name points to her origin. Her second name points to her destiny. Do you see how he's honoring his wife? Not only is she from him, but she has a role in the world that no one else can or does have. And he honors her. He blesses her. He names her Eve. Because she's the mother of all living. Despite sin, the gift of motherhood will emerge. And what a beautiful gift to mankind motherhood is. Some have tasted the sweetness of this gift in a mom who loved you and nurtured you and held you and taught you and encouraged you and prayed for you and cheered you on and cried with you and blessed you. Many have tasted that. It's a beautiful gift. Many have not tasted that beautiful gift, the beautiful gift of motherhood. This is perhaps one of the reasons why we need the local church. This is perhaps one of the things that God is doing in faith families or local churches. That in the church we might find a new family, not a perfect family, but we might find the kind of family that many of us never had. Paul literally describes the church as a family with brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. So in his conception for Paul, the church is a web of familial relationship, a network of mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. Relationships between men and women from all of life's stages. And this is one of the things that makes the church so beautiful and unlike anything else you'll find in the culture. Because in the culture, we define associations by shared interest. Young people hang out with young people. Old people hang out with old people. People with kids hang out with people with kids. One of the reasons I love our community group is because it has young, old, kids, no kids, single, married. So the church is supposed to be a place where we don't gather around shared interests like politics or income or ethnicity or life stage or whatever. We gather around rather the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, all kinds of people come together and become one. Out of many, one comes. So literally, we become a family with all kinds of generational diversity. My first few years here, I was blessed beyond measure by the other, or excuse me, by the older ladies of our church. Older, okay? Quote me on that. Make sure you get that right. Older. 
Some are still with us. There's Rose, Kimball, Linda, Houston, Sandra. Many have gone on to glory. I'll never forget Pat Brown. Raise your hand if you remember Pat Brown. A few. Yeah. I'll never forget Pat Brown, who joy, joyfully and just loved me and just encouraged me, prayed for me. She would tell me I was like a grandson to her. And I was like, Pat, don't say that. <laughs> I loved her love for our church family. As our church grew younger, she and Gail, her husband, would still come to things with the young people because they were just thrilled to be part of the family. We'd have these little pool parties at our apartment, <laughs> you know, with all the, all the kids. And Pat and Gail would come with their camping chairs and just sit around and be there and talk and love the family. This is the body of Christ, intergenerational, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. I want to say a quick word here to all ladies. Verse 20, this, this verse here, implies that motherhood is part, part of what it means for you to be a woman. What do I mean by that? Let me say this again clearly. Verse 20 implies that motherhood is part of what it means to be a woman. What do I mean? Well, Adam, again, names her, literally, life giver. Adam names her life giver before she has kids. So her identity as mother wasn't contingent on her having children. So this means that there's something motherly that's intrinsic to your womanhood. This doesn't mean that all women will have or should have children. Many won't and many can't. This doesn't mean that women are supposed to stay home with the babies and never leave the house and they only do kids stuff. That's not what it means at all. What it does mean is that there are ways that you're wired that are motherly. Regardless of whether you have kids. This is perhaps why women generally have a deeper sense of empathy a tenderness and compassion, a nurturing spirit, an ability to create and cultivate beauty in a home, an ability to mother even if you're not a mother. This is what Pat Brown was to me. She mothered me. Even though her kids were all grown, she never lost her mothering abilities. This is why my mother-in-law, my own mom, are two of the most encouraging people in my life, even though I'm a grown-up Hugging them is like a drink of cool water on a hot day. They encourage me. They have this ability to care for, care for me in a way that no one else does. So ladies, whether you have kids or not, or whether you have kids at home or not, find ways to use your mothering to bless God's people, to bless children and even grown-ups through your tenderness and compassion in and, and your home. You have things the church and the world desperately need. Just think of it. The world is already dark and difficult. Can you imagine a world without the gift of motherhood? Just imagine. Just imagine how dark and difficult the world would be without the gift of motherhood. So ladies, pray, pray and ask God to show you how you can use your gift of mothering to bless his people. So this is number one. Verse 20, we've seen Adam's response. He responds to the word of God in faith by naming his wife Eve before she has children. Number two, we see God's provision. Verse 21, God's provision. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God covers them with clothes. This is God's final gift to them in the garden. But the clothes are going to be a perpetual reminder to them of their sin. So again, we see justice and mercy woven together here. A gift that will remind them of their sin. 
nakedness was deeply shameful in ancient Israel. In our immodest culture, we've lost a lot of that. But there is something deeply shameful about nakedness in a fallen world. Nakedness in general. In marriage, it's okay. Throw that qualifier in there. In Israel, God, God couldn't and he didn't allow there to be nakedness around his altar. He didn't allow anyone, allow anyone to approach him unclothed or not fully clothed. He commanded the priests to cover their privates when they approached the altar, lest his altar be defiled. Nakedness was a big deal for ancient Israel. So it's no surprise when we get to verse 21 to see that Adam and Eve needed to be decently clothed as they prepared to leave the garden. So God clothed them himself. Prior to sin, this wouldn't have been necessary. But sin, of course, always profoundly changes things. Sin doesn't just leave things as they were. Sin changes things. So they need clothes now. These clothes will remind them of their sin. Just as pain in childbirth will remind the woman of of her sin... And toil and work or pain and work would remind the man of his disobedience. So also their clothing together would be a daily reminder that they sinned against God and could no longer walk freely before him in innocence. The reason any of us are wearing clothes today, right now, is because of what happened in the garden. The clothes that you're wearing, all of this, should remind you what we lost because of sin. These are perpetual reminders that things aren't as they were because of sin's entrance into the world. Now notice that it says in verse 21 that God made Adam and Eve garments of skins. Skins. This, of course, is referring to animal skins. This garment or tunic was a basic outer garment worn next to the skin, a skin of animal, animal skin you wore on your skin. It would be like a long shirt that reached the knees or ankles. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if like, my parents couldn't afford pajamas or what, but like they would just give us their extra large t-shirts, you know, like here's your pajamas. And it'd be like this massive shirt that went all the way down to my, it was a t-shirt, but it went down to my wrist and like went down to my legs. And it just felt, always felt so exposed in that thing. But anyways, <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of like a tunic, you know, you just wear it over your body and it hangs down low, goes almost to your feet sometimes. That's what this garment was. You see, Adam and Eve could only make themselves loincloths. You might remember that from chapter 3, verse 7. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths, so they covered up the essentials. But then God comes along and provides them with a full and proper set of clothes. This would cover their embarrassment. It would protect them from the elements. But is that all that's going on here? This is perhaps one place of Genesis 1 through 3 where Moses assumes later information. You see, these skins had to come from somewhere. The text doesn't say that God killed animals to to get these skins, but that seems like a fair implication. This text anticipates this notion of sacrifice through killing animals, though it's not stated explicitly, that an animal would have to die to cover the shame and nakedness of God's people. There are even more explicit verbal connections between uh, what we see here and later the tabernacle. The work of the priests in the tabernacle is foreshadowed because these words, notice the words in verse 21, garments and clothed. Garments and clothed. Those two words show up later in Exodus and Leviticus to describe the priests who served in the tabernacle. They were given by Moses, they were given garments. And then Moses clothed them to serve in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the meeting place where you met with God. So the priests had to be properly clothed to enter it. This is yet another place. We've seen this already in weeks prior where the image, imagery of the Garden of Eden shows up again in the tabernacle. I hope to talk about this a little bit more next week, Lord willing, because the parallels are profound. What we see in the garden shows up later in the tabernacle and the temple in some very profound ways. It's not surprising then that there's an allusion to animal sacrifice here in the garden. Moses seems to have the tabernacle in mind when he writes verse 21. He says clearly that there's garments and clothing and he uses the same language later. But he's also referring to probably implicitly 
the animal sacrifices that would be made by those priests who were properly clothed with garments. So I think it's safe to conclude that this verse may function as the basis for at least a historical forerunner of the entire sacrificial system. Now, why have I gone on this little excursus? Why am I saying this? Why is this important? Why is it important to see in verse 21 some explicit and implicit connections between this verse, this little verse, and the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament? Why? Why is that important? What what am I doing here? Well, here's what I'm doing. Israel's sacrificial system was never meant to be an end in itself. It was always intended by God to point to the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, the sacrificial system was fulfilled and ended by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to make your way over to Hebrews chapter 7, I want to read you a few verses that make this plain for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Hebrews 7, 23 through 27. We'll learn of Christ, the great high priest, who sacrificed for the sins of his people. Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood Permanently, because he continues forever. Because he continues forever. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the writer of Hebrews is just saying Jesus is different than all the other priests. He has no successors, verse 24, he has no successors because he lives forever. He makes an implicit intercession for his people forever, verse 25. He's holy and pure, verse 26. In other words, Jesus was not morally compromised because we need a priest as perfect as God is. So he was perfect. He doesn't have to keep offering sacrifices like the other priests, verse 27. The blood of animals in the Old Testament were meant to symbolically signify the need for atonement, but they had no moral significance. As the writer of Hebrews later says, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away your sin. Animal blood can't save you. So God would have to send a sacrifice that was morally pure, not just physically pure. Jesus, of course, is this perfect priest. And Jesus is the perfect priest. Interestingly, Jesus was unclothed for his people. His garments were ripped off. His shame was exposed. Why? For you. For you, friends. He was shamed because of your shame. He was innocent but declared guilty for your guilt so that you could be righteous. He received the curse of the law, death. And as he hung on the cross, as Jonathan read earlier, the father forsook him. He couldn't see the smile of his father. He hung there utterly alone, bearing the curse of the law. And the penalty of sin. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, the snake crusher was crushed for us. On the cross, the priest becomes the sacrifice. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied and his mercy displayed. If you wonder whether God is just, look at the cross. He sent his only son to die for sin because he takes sin Seriously, if you wonder if God is merciful, how could God, someone like me, John, you have no idea what I've done. Look at the cross. He sent his precious son to die, to take your sin, to take it all, forever. On the cross, his justice is satisfied and his mercy is displayed. 
So the cross shows us that judgment doesn't have the last word. That God, in mercy, sacrifices His Son, the great high priest, for His people. I want to go back to Genesis 3 and show you something that's not spelled out for us in the text. But I want to show you a connection between verse 20 and 21 that shows us that God's judgment doesn't have the last word, as I just said. God's judgment doesn't have the last word for His people. God's judgment doesn't have the last word for His people. So in 20, just as Adam renames his wife, so 21, God will reclothe the couple. Woman gives way to Eve, and then fig leaves give way to leather. What's happening here? Well, both of these actions, 20 and 21, indicate that there's a future for God's people with God despite their sin. Both of these verses indicate that Adam and Eve will survive because of the gracious intervention of God. Out of mercy, God is going to give them kids and God's going to give them clothes. In other words, friends, hear this. If you're not a Christian yet, please hear this. Friends, with God, sinners can have a future. You can have a future. You can have a hope. You don't have to wander through this life wondering if you're going to live in heaven one day. You can have a hope and a future with God in Christ. We see that even here in the third chapter of the Bible. As God says, he will do things for sinners that will ensure that they have a future with him. Adam and Eve needed a specific kind of covering to make it safely through the world, so God provided it. Adam and Eve had attempted to cover their own shame and protect themselves with, as Paul Tripp loves to say, their self-salvation project. And their self-salvation project didn't work. They needed a covering that required death, a covering provided by God, not man. Notice again verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife. God made these coverings. They didn't make them themselves. This was a salvation provided by God. And friends, we find ourselves in the same spot, don't we? Our lives are naked before God. He sees all and knows all. He sees our attempts to cover what we've done with good deeds and religion, and fine talk, and hiding. He sees our hiding. He sees our calculus of comparing ourselves to others so that then we feel better about ourselves. We minimize our guilt and our sin. He sees how we don't think He's altogether holy, or that sin is that serious, or that one day people all automatically just end up in heaven. He sees our errant beliefs. He sees our Sins in the darkness. He sees our attempts to use religion to cover up who we really are. He sees our pride. He sees our haughtiness. He sees our lust. He sees our gossip and our slander. He sees our divisiveness. He sees our arrogance. He sees our covetousness. He sees how we demean people made in the image of God through our words and in our thoughts. He sees how we're greedy and we're hoarding stuff for ourselves while people are suffering around the world. He sees everything. And remarkably, he moves towards us in the gospel. He says, I see everything, and I still want you to have my son. And if you'll have him, guess what? I'm going to take all the stuff that you'd rather not talk about. I'm going to take all that so that when I see you, I'm only going to see him. So when I look at you, I'm going to see you as precious and beautiful and holy and pure. I'm going to see you as righteous in Christ. If you hear his voice today, friends, don't harden your heart. Don't say, man, I've heard this a thousand times. Don't say, man, Christianity is just for weak people. No, there's a God in heaven and a Christ who died to save you. Admit your sin to him. Believe in the gospel. Confess that Jesus is Lord and that he was crucified for your sins and was raised on the third day for your salvation. If you do this, you'll receive unending unending mercy and kindness from the God who made you right now. If you do this, you can have that shameful nakedness of your sin before a holy God covered up right now. Why would you wait any longer? And brothers and sisters in Christ, many of us in this room are already already embracing this great news wholeheartedly. Let us be reminded that God killed an animal to make Adam and Eve covered but he killed his son to cover our sins. Let us not forget what God has done for us. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, 
He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Christ we literally become the righteousness of God. In Him, in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Him. Christ must become our righteousness. This is why I had us read the Ligonier Statement two Sundays in a row, for those of you paying attention. Because I love that phrase. He took our filthy rags and gives us what? His righteous robe. Brothers and sisters, the reason we need to know, one of the reasons we need to know this, believe this, hear this again and again is because, look, we all feel terrible about what we've done. We all kind of have low-level guilt that just lives with us. We have self-hate. We have shame. We have stuff that no one knows about. We have stuff that we just do on the daily that we just are so tired of. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you wear His robes. You're not going to get any purer than that. And out of that, out of that, rejoice. Out of that, put your sin to death. Out of that, serve Him, follow Him, love Him, tell someone about Him. But remember what you're wearing. You're not defined by what you did, what you thought. You're not defined by what your parents called you, what your friends named you. You're not defined by that garbage. You're defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. You wear Him. You wear Him. So that when God sees you, He sees His precious Son. Is there anything more precious to the Father than His Son? And we're wrapped up into that. This is amazing. This should change your life. So we've seen God's provision. And we saw Adam's response. Thirdly, let's see God's protection. Number three, verses 22 through 24, God's protection. God's protection. Then the Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see one final instance of God's mercy and God's judgment woven together as he interacts with those who've sinned against him. Because God is just, he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because God is merciful, he protects them from eating of the tree of life so that they won't live forever in their fallen state in a fallen world. By guarding them from returning to the tree of life, God is withholding a good from them that would have been unbearable for them in their present condition. There's justice and there's mercy. In verse 22, interesting, did you notice how it's as if God's sentence kind of ends in midair? Did you see that? Now, let's see, reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, what, what are you going to say next? Like, what does God say next? Well, I think the narrator leaves it for us to supply the rest of what God says. Let you take and eat and live forever. Let us expel you, let us expel them from the garden. This kind of construction is unusual in the Hebrew. The omission of the conclusion conveys the speed of God's action. In other words, God has barely stopped speaking before they're thrown out of the garden. God acted, acted decisively and swiftly. He's just. He never just lets sin go. He doesn't act like nothing happened. He comes through on his word. He does, he does what he said he would do. Man's sin has provoked God's judgment. They are driven out of the garden. They must leave God's presence. This is justice. Yet again, there's mercy. There's mercy here. First, they haven't died physically immediately. They didn't die physically immediately, but they did die in a a way even worse than that. Because of their sin, they died spiritually. Their intimacy with God is now replaced with an alienation from God. In the mind of the Israelite, to be removed from the presence of God was a kind of living death. More catastrophic than physical death. Remember in the, when the Israelites were traversing through the wilderness? You know, if, if you were caught in sin or did something that was wrong or 
disobeyed the law, sometimes they would put you outside of the camp. The camp was where God lived with his people. So to be outside of the camp was bad news. Worse than dying. You're cut off from the life of God. This is what's happening here. They're being put outside the camp. God puts them out in the cold. In a sense, he disowns them. He makes them homeless. But of course, again, in mercy, he's given them clothes and he's promised them kids. But they will suffer for what they did. There will be consequences because God is just. Now I want to point out yet another example of the temple or tabernacle imagery here. There's so many connections between Genesis 1 through 3 and the tabernacle. I, this is the kind of stuff that I just nerd out on. Is that like when you start reading the Bible, you're like, oh, this connects to this and this connects to this. Like this is all one big story, not loosely or unrelated, loosely related facts. So here in verse 24, notice what it says. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim. The cherubim are placed where? Say it again. East. Do you remember which way the tabernacle and the temple faced? What was that? East. East. It wasn't a trick question. So the, so the way you entered the presence of God, the tabernacle temple, was through the east. The way you entered the garden we can assume, we can imply, was from the east. So the cherubim are stationed at the entrance. This means that the garden was an archetypal sanctuary, sanctuary where God was uniquely present in life-giving power. This is what Adam and Eve lost when they chose to eat the fruit. They lost living in the very presence of life. They forfeited life for the satanic delusion of being like God. They thought they would become more like God. Turns out they weren't even going to be with him anymore. And this wasn't a temporary assignment. This wasn't a temporary arrangement. What was done could never be undone. The cherubim functioned like later Levites who were posted around the tabernacle and commanded to strike down anyone who approached the tabernacle unlawfully. So these cherubim there in verse 24 are the guardians at the gate of the sanctuary. Guardians at the gate of the garden. No, you're not going to find, by the way, you're not going to find the cherubim still over in the Middle East somewhere. The flood destroyed the garden, the two trees at its center. These cherubim were put there tempor temporarily to guard what Adam was supposed to guard. It was Adam's job to keep the garden or guard the garden. And somehow, on his watch, this serpent slithers in. And all hell breaks loose, literally. So Adam's forfeited his job to guard the garden. Now this cherubim is going to guard the garden. These cherubim were angelic beings. They were armed. Perhaps they held the flaming sword. They guarded the place where God met with man. This comes again, this... This comes before the tabernacle and the temple, but it's meant to prefigure later what we're going to learn about the tabernacle and the temple. The Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? What was on the top of it? Two golden cherubim sculpted on top of it. The curtains that surrounded the tabernacle. So outside of the tabernacle, there's all these curtains that made a huge rectangle around the tabernacle. The curtains had cherubim skillfully woven into them. The veil that covered the Holy of Holies in front of or inside of the tabernacle had cherubim skillfully worked into it. There were two massive golden cherubim made to stand over the ark in the inner sanctuary of the temple. This is amazing. I tried to visualize my mind this week, but they were, I think it was like uh, 20 cubits wide, and I think it's like 30 feet. Y'all can fact check me on that. But it's like these cherubim in the Holy of Holies were 30 feet wide. Their wings touched the wall. One wing touched that wall. Their wings touched in the middle, and then the other wing touched that wall. I don't know. Is this about 30 feet? Probably not quite. Anybody? Is this 30 feet? Yes? So imagine two towering, golden, angelic figures, their wings touching the wall and touching each other, 
kind of looking down and covering. It says their wings covered the Ark of the Covenant. These cherubim were what? Guarding the way. Guarding the way to the life-giving presence of God. Of course, in the temple, there are carved, engraved figures of cherubim on the walls, all the rooms. Also, in the temple, there were figures of palm trees and open flowers carved into the walls. So inside the temple, it was made to look like the Garden of Eden, where God's presence dwelt. Now, you might remember, as Jonathan read earlier, that something happened when Jesus died inside that temple. What happened? The curtain was torn in two. The curtain was torn in two. That curtain that had cherubim engraved and sewn into it was ripped up from top to bottom. I love that Spurgeon says, Spurgeon says something to the effect of it wasn't rolled up and, and stored away like, like it could be replaced. No, it was ripped, so it was useless. It was demolished, it was gone. The theological implications couldn't be clearer for us. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, only accessible by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So when the curtain is ripped, God's presence is all of a sudden available to everyone. This was an act of God. The curtain was torn from the top to bottom. God ripped it because he decides when and where his saving presence goes. No sinner can enter his presence without being consumed. No sinner can kind of just peel back the curtain on their own. No, God ripped the curtain so that people could come in and so that God's presence could come out. Because of Jesus' death and upon Jesus' death, God's presence became freely and fully available to everyone who would look at Jesus' death as sufficient to save them from their sins. In other words, upon Jesus' death, God made himself available to all people. God's life-giving presence was now available to everyone who would come, like that centurion, at the foot of the cross and say, truly, this man was, is the son of the living God. If that's you, friend, you've been ushered into the life-giving presence of God. There's nothing in between you and God. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing in between you and God. You're like, man, John, I haven't had a quiet time all week. I haven't read my Bible in like a month. I'm struggling just to stay awake right now. Amen. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm about to land the plane. That's what I'm, I promise. There's nothing in between you and God, friend. Because of Christ, there's nothing in between you and God. There's nothing in between you and God. That book I recommended at the beginning of the service, The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, says it this way. When Jesus died, something amazing, astonishing, astounding happened. The curtain tore. God had ripped up the keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again. Because Jesus died, we can go in. And Jesus has sent everyone an invitation to come and live with him there too. He tells us, God says it is wonderful to live with him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross to take your sin, so all my friends can now come in. We can live with God forever. There will be nothing bad and no one sad. We will see God and speak to God and just enjoy being with God just as he planned. It will be wonderful to live with him. End quote. Through his death, Jesus opened heaven's gates. The flaming sword of God's judgment fell on Jesus so that we could go back into the garden to live with God. Genesis 3 ends with man leaving the, having to leave the garden and the door locks behind him. Man has fallen from innocence. He's been exiled from the good land of life and sent out to live in a cursed land of death and pain. The serpent promised him privileges, but they got pain instead. Rather than might, they get misery. Rather than thrones, they get thorns. Rather than reward, they get a reversal. Rather than gaining something they didn't have, they lost what they did have. As one scholar says, they found nothing and lost everything. Again, it's interesting to note that they thought they would be like God. And it turns out that they won't even be with him because of their sin. They lost what we've longed to regain ever since. But God... Through Abraham, as we will see as we continue through Genesis, through Abraham, God is going to continue to unfold 
his plan to bring his people into his presence and bless them once again. The way to the tree of life was blocked in Genesis 3, but Revelation 22 says it won't be blocked forever. Can I close with a few verses from the last chapter of the Bible? 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then it says in verse 14, Those who have their robes washed by the blood of the Lamb and made white have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. In other words, the garden was once closed, but now it's open again. It's open again. For everyone who comes to Christ in faith and repentance, they will be brought into the garden to live with God once again. The invitation here in verse 17 is this, the Spirit and the Bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, all you have to have to get back to this tree, to get back into the garden, all you have to have is need. All you have to have is need. Do you recognize your need before the holy God who made you? Are you honest about that with him? And with yourself. Are you putting your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, if all of your hope is in Christ, then one day you will be ushered right up to the tree of life and eat of its fruit and be forever and fully healed. The garden was once closed, but now it's open for all who will come. If you're thirsty, come. The water's free. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Please take your word, write it on our hearts, shape our lives. Help us to remember the things that are from you and for you and for our good. Help us to be changed and convicted, encouraged through your word this morning. Pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but, but doers. Help us to be zealous, to love one another well in the body of Christ. Men and women, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, help us to love one another just as God in Christ has loved us. Help us to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. Help us to forgive one another as God in Christ has, has forgiven us. Help us, Father. Help us to live this gospel out as a people who are longing to live with you, to go back to the garden, to eat from the tree of life. Lord, help us. Keep us faithful to that day. Sustain us. Hold us up. Hold us together. Until that day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.